already talking about marriage for four weeks, and this is, this is new for us um, at the story because the story's been alive for 21 months now. Um, and uh, if you're new here, you may, not, you may not know that about us or you may not know what we've talked about to this point unless you've looked online. But, uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about dating and some about friendship. We spent like three months on friendship one time. <laughs> I thought everybody was going to kill me. Um, but uh, it was a lot of friendship talk <laughs> for a while. We never talked about marriage. Have y'all noticed that? It's a little weird. Usually marriage is kind of front and center at a church. And we have intentionally not talked about marriage because most of our congregation is not married. Most of our congregation is either uh, like really young people or single people or, uh, you know, divorced people that are single again. Um, and, and so they're the majority. And so we have uh, catered most of our conversations to that uh, crowd. But I do think this series is going to hit home for everyone, regardless of whether or not you're already married. Today we're going to talk specifically about building uh, the kind of dating life that leads to strong marriage. So we're kind of back on dating a little bit today. In the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about building the strong marriage if you're already married. And so I hope that um, these conversations are enriching uh, and helpful in some ways. I'll, I'll say this. I think that as a society, we are at a point where we're kind of at a marriage crisis. And I talked about this a little bit during our dating series before. But uh, we have never seen what's happening right now in America before. So in 1920, um, these are adults in America, right, over 18 years old, 18 or older. 85% of adults in America were married in 1920. By 1960, it was 72% of adults in America. And by 2010, that number had dipped to less than 50%. So for the first time in American history, fewer adults in America are, are uh, married than they are single. I should say, yeah, that's right. Did I say that right? So there's more single adults in America than there are married ones. Isn't that interesting? And this is a phenomenon. Nobody really knows why it's happening. I think there's a few different explanations, right? The first thing everybody says is, well, it's the divorce rate. That's the problem. And I think that's false. Because even as that number of single adults increases, the divorce rate has steadied off and kind of started to, to de decline. Since 1989, 1990, where divorce hit its peak, we've kind of seen divorce plateau and even edged down a little bit. But what's happening is that people just aren't getting married. Young people aren't getting married, at least not as young as they used to. And that's all right. But what's maybe a little less all right about it is that young people don't seem to have a real plan a lot of times for getting married at all. Now, there's the desire. The desire hasn't changed from 1920 to now. The same percentage of adults still say marriage is in their future, hopefully, but in terms of timing, it doesn't work out. So a lot of young adults are waiting longer while they pursue a good career and travel the world and experience, you know, what they call freedom in life, right, um, before they settle down, we call it, which is an awful way of talking about marriage, actually. Um, maybe, that's, maybe marriage has a branding <laughs> <laughs> settling down and, uh, you know, ball and chain, all that stuff. It's awful, right? Nobody wants that. So uh, uh, you're getting hitched, whatever, you know. Um, so uh, there's that. And then another thing that's happening is that more couples that are, you know, together are just cohabitating and not actually tying the knot. There's a lot of couples that are cohabitating here. And we welcome cohabitating couples. I love you. I've got a premarital counseling plan just for you because it's a little different when you've lived together than when you haven't. And so uh, we're glad you're here. It's more and more common. Um, but sometimes what cohabitating means is 
I really love you, and I think this might work out. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to tell you that we're together forever, but I'm going to keep my options open <laughs> just in case uh, someone better comes along, at which point you become kind of disposable to me. That's the message cohabitation really sins. Uh, I'm going to step on toes throughout this service, so get used to it. Uh, but this is, this is just uh, the, the world um, that we live in today. Um, mostly single people, uh, including in Houston, by the way, where 45% of adult males are married and only 41% of adult females are married in Houston. We're a highly single city. Do you know that? Houston's a great town for single people. Anyway, uh, number three, uh, I think uh, the third reason this happens is the soulmate fallacy. We talked a little bit about this in our dating series. Uh, the soulmate fallacy is this misguided notion that somewhere out there right now there's some boy that's your age that's just waiting for you like you're waiting for him and it's just a matter of time and your paths are going to cross and he's made for you and he always has been and when you meet him he's going to know how to love you and even though you've never met he's going to know how to meet your needs and uh, you know uh, you know and she doesn't uh, you know she 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 knows everything about you having never met you and she doesn't have a past you know it's like she's never she's never been with anyone or she's never been married didn't have any kids because all she's been doing is sitting around waiting for you right that's the that's the notion of of the soulmate fallacy it's silly it sounds silly but i'm telling you this is a destroyer of relationships before they even get a chance to start the soulmate fallacy destroys them good what could be lasting relationships are destroyed by the soulmate fallacy. I'll give you an example. I've seen it so many times. I can give you 100 examples. But there was a, a girl named Leah in Kansas City. She was in our church in Kansas City when we were there. And I just, I love Leah so much. She's such a bright, brilliant, driven, uh, you know, ambitious, uh, smart, funny, beautiful girl. And, uh, and, and she had a boy in Kansas City that loved her. She had a boy who loved her. Would have stepped in front of a train for her. Just that kind of love. Just loved her, right? Uh, and, and yet, Leah, like many young women, she was in her 20s, she had, ever since she could remember, she had been dreaming about her wedding day. Every detail of her wedding day. And when she closed her eyes and pictured her wedding day, ever since she was a little girl, the man standing at the end of the aisle waiting for her looked nothing like this boy who loved her. He was like tall and ripped. And this boy wasn't, right? So this guy, <laughs> this guy's like 6'2", and this guy's like 5'8", you know. And this guy's like got thick curly hair, and this guy's early onset, you know, male pattern baldness or whatever. This guy's got the six pack, and this guy's just got one big old pack, you know, like. <laughs> but this guy loves her. And this guy doesn't exist. And he would love her forever and only her forever. And he would treat her like a princess. Every morning she woke up, he'd have breakfast ready. You know, he's just that kind of guy, a respectful, adoring, God-fearing, Jesus-loving guy who knows a good woman when he sees her. But Leah wanted the dream. She wanted the dream. And so she let the good guy go to wait for the dream. Now, this is painful. Because there's people in the room that have lived this. I don't have to tell you what happened next. The, the good guy, you know, somehow like lost 20 pounds and suddenly became hot. And like met a girl and she <laughs> treasured him. And like the, 
and, and you know, the, 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 the dream guy never came. Now, Leah, who always wanted to be married by a certain age, she, like she went through a bunch of boyfriends who were tall and ripped, but they were also like unemployed and narcissistic, you know, like, like occasionally emotionally abusive guys who looked like that guy, but didn't love her. And uh, she always carried around with her those regrets. It is the soulmate fallacy. It's a killer. One therapist, she said it this way. She said, when a patient comes in and tells me that he or she has just met his or her soulmate, my highly trained auditory units respond by going into extreme hyper alert and I metaphorically strap on my seatbelt. For the most part, what I hear my client saying is that my patient believes he or she has just met the person who will complete them a la Jerry Maguire. And while that might sound wonderful when you hear Tom Cruise saying it as he's playing Jerry, the reality of the soulmate idea is a little more Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah's couch. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, it's pretty rare that you find a funny therapist. But that's a funny therapist right there. And uh, she nails it. It's the soulmate fallacy. It kills a good relationship before it even has a chance to start. Ladies, I'll start here and just say, if there's a good man in your life and you're single, this does not apply to married women. If there's a good <laughs> <laughs> ladies, if there's a good man in your life and he loves you, and he'll take a train for you or a bullet for you, but he's 5'8 instead of 6'2", just no offense here, but just get over yourself. Get over yourself. Don't let that man get away. Look at it this way. You get to wear flats the rest of your life. And I, I've never worn stilettos, but I got to think flats are better. Flats look better. They feel better. I got to think than stilettos. And you get to wear them forever. Look at it as his gift to you, right? You can, you can get over you can get over that stuff if he's a little less Chris Pratt, a little more Paul Giamatti, you know. Like invest in a home gym. You know, you can get some Rogaine if you need to, but don't let that boy get away. That boy is one in a million. I mean, have you ever seen Parks and Rec? You seen Chris Pratt in Parks and Rec? Chris Pratt wasn't always Chris Pratt. He became Star-Lord later. You never know what can happen with a man. You know, invest a little love in him. You never know what can happen. And guys, the same is true for you. Guys, you're worse than girls about this. Typically. I'm brushing with broad strokes here, but y'all hang in there with me. Guys, if there's a girl in your life who is true and good and her heart is gold, you know she'll make a great mother one day and you know that she loves you and you can tell her anything and you laugh together and you love her company, but maybe physically it's not all there happening for you and there's a little not something missing or a little too much of something or whatever, like don't be an idiot. Don't let that girl get away. She is one in a million. If she loves the Lord and she loves you, like they don't make them like that much anymore. Don't be a fool. Don't fall for this world's traps and tricks and lock that girl down today because a woman can lose the weight just like a man can gain, you know, the biceps. And two friends can develop sexual intimacy, sexual chemistry together. It happened for generations before Hollywood and Hallmark and everything screwed us up, right? Like it was happening forever. And it can happen still over time because soulmates aren't born. Soulmates are made. Soulmates aren't born. Soulmates are made. And what I mean by that is that two people aren't born, you know, prepackaged for each other. Soulmates are made when two people decide to choose each other and only each other every single day for 10,000 days. And you wake up and realize, I found a soulmate. It's been the one I chose 10,000 days ago. I think it takes a certain level of maturity to see that. 
And the Bible connects for us love and romance and maturity. Maturity, I mean, romance and love are not for the immature. You can only understand deep, true, abiding, lasting love whenever you are mature in your own character and your own faith. And the Bible says this clearly. Y'all know the, the love chapter? If I say love chapter, what are you going to say? The Song of Songs, that's a different kind of love. I'll see you guys in service and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Y'all are cracking me up. 1 Corinthians 13 is the other love chapter. Uh, <laughs> uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul's like love chapter, right? It's the one you hear at every wedding. Every wedding. Love is patient, love is kind, da, da, da. But look, that stuff you hear at the wedding is just the preamble to the really important part of that chapter. That chapter builds and builds and builds until it gets to 1 Corinthians 13, 11, where Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, behaved like a child, loved like a child, reasoned like a child. I became a man, though. I became an adult. I grew up and love changed. I grew up and learned to love. I learned what love is when I grew up. And it culminates with this message about maturity. And some of us deeply need to hear this message. That to know love and how to love and have lasting love in marriage requires maturity. Especially true in the dating scene today. So the Bible doesn't say a ton about dating. Dating wasn't really a thing in Bible times. But there's a story that I love that I think speaks loud and clear to men and women on the dating scene today. Looking for, hoping for marriage one day, right? So it's the story of Ruth. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, and the story of Ruth, uh, is so profound that Ruth gets her own book in the Bible. She, her book is the eighth book in the Old Testament. And she's one of two women that have books in the Bible named after them. The other one's Esther. So Ruth's story uh, is about uh, this young girl named Ruth who is a Moabite. Moabites were um, kind of to the Israelites a little bit like uh, Muslims are to Christians today like a lot in common, but there's, uh, there's a little bit of history. There's a little bit of bad blood there. It's like Katie and uh, Katy Perry and uh, Taylor Swift, right? Like there's a lot in common. They got a lot going on together, uh, but there's just been too much that's happened between them, I guess. Some kind of fight about their dancers or something. I've got a nine-year-old daughter. And so when Ruth, that's how Moabites and Israelites are to, are, are to each other, right? So when Ruth is a kid growing up in Moab, there's this new family that moves into town, and they're different. They're foreigners. They're from Israel. They're the enemy. And the father's name is Elimelech, and the mother's name is Naomi, and they move in because there's a famine in Israel. They've come to find food to feed their two sons who are about Ruth's age children, right? And their two sons marry two Moabite women. Well, about that time, Elimelech dies. Elimelech the patriarch dies, leaving Naomi a widow, which is a vulnerable place to be for a woman in those times. She was kind of the head of household, I guess, until the boys were old enough to claim that. But when the boys were teenagers, they, they do take wives of their own, two Moabite women named Orpha and Ruth. Ruth is one of their two wives. Not long after those weddings, both the sons die too, though, leaving Naomi grieving her dead husband and her two dead sons. So Naomi is a mess. She is depressed. She's miserable. She changes her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Marah, which means bitter. She tells everybody just to call her bitter because she's bitter. Does anyone here have a bitter mother-in-law? Don't answer that. So Naomi is bitter and depressed. 
and she has nothing. This is an incredibly tenuous situation for a woman in her place. Elderly and alone with no income, women in Naomi's place often just died on the streets. There was no safety net for them in a place like Moab. So Naomi says, you know, I'm going to go back and die at home. She says, I'm going to go back to Israel. I'm going to die there alone. And she tells, she instructs the two teenage girls who are also widows now, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to their father's homes. She says, go back home and start your lives over, and I'm going to travel back to Israel alone and die there. And Orpah does what most of us would do, and Orpah's like, peace, I'm out, thank you very much, I'll see you later, mother-in-law, goodbye, and I'm going to restart my life. But Ruth, Ruth is not so quick to abandon her mother-in-law, which is amazing after Thanksgiving, right? Can you imagine, like, spending all this time with your mother-in-law after she tells you to just leave her alone and you stick? Ruth says this. It's the most famous passage in all of the book of Ruth, and you've heard this at weddings too. It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord deal with me that be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. You've heard this at weddings too, right? It would kind of change the game at the wedding, though, if, if everybody knew that there was a girl talking to her mother-in-law and not like Prince Charming and the princess, right? Like this is, this is a teenage girl talking to her mother-in-law about love. And, and Ruth demonstrates this kind of character that's uncommon for someone her age. And so she goes... With Naomi. She knows Naomi won't make it to Israel alive. She'll die on the way. So she goes with Naomi, and along the way, she takes care of the older woman. She provides for her. When they get to Israel and they're poor and broke and hungry, it's Ruth that goes out to find food for her mother in law. Um, she doesn't go out and beg for money on the streets. She doesn't go out and sell her body on the streets. Instead, Ruth goes to work. And she goes out into the fields and she does something called gleaning, which was the Old Testament version of like a welfare system or a social security system. When you were poor and didn't have money for yourself to feed your family, you went out into the fields and followed the harvesters, the day laborers around as they brought in the sheaves of barley. And the harvesters were instructed, if they didn't get something on the first pass, to not go back and clean it up, right, and pick up everything. Whatever they left on the first pass was to be left for the poor to come and gather for themselves. So Ruth's out in the field doing this, right, on her own, a teenage girl, a foreigner, out working hard to put food on the table. And then this happens. The owner of the, of the farm comes around. His name is Boaz. And Boaz shows up and he says this uh, in Ruth chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Do we have this screen, guys? Ruth 2, 5 to 12. Sorry, we don't have study guides, so we need it today. No? Okay. Hi. Listen. Listen closely. I'll read. All right. Ruth 2, uh, 5 to 12. Here we go. Uh, it says, uh, this is pretty, pretty long here. Oh, there it is. Good, good, good. Okay. So you got it. Uh, it says, uh, Boaz comes uh, to, the, to the overseer of the harvesters. says, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and clean, glean in another field and don't go away from here. 
Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after with the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whatever, whenever you are thirsty, go back and drink from the water jars the men have filled. And at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied to Ruth, I've been told all about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you come to take refuge. So then Ruth goes home from gleaning and she's all giddy. Like a teenage girl when she's found a boy, right? She's giddy. She tells Naomi everything. And Naomi's like, you know, he's single, right? I don't know if that's what she really said, but I picture it that way. Like, girl, you know, whatever. I don't know if that how it translates into Old Testament, you know, Hebrew. But so they make a plan to get, to get Ruth back in front of Boaz. They, they dress her up. They make her up. And she goes out on the town that night and finds Boaz late at night. And they get... Uh, to be alone together, and Ruth just goes out on a limb and says, Boaz, I like you. And she proposes to Boaz. A teenage girl, foreigner, barely probably speaks the language, proposes to Boaz, a well-to-do Israelite man. Now, it's rare today for a woman to propose to a man. In those days, it was almost unheard of. But Ruth was not about to waste any time on the dating scene. She knew what she wanted. She'd found it, and she was going to claim it. And uh, Boaz is faced then with a decision. In Ruth chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, this is Boaz's response. He says, the Lord bless you. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. He's talking about his, her kindness to Naomi. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now don't be afraid, for I will do all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Check that out, that part at the end. All the people that I respect, respect you. All the people I look up to, look up to you. They know you are a woman of noble character. This young teenage girl from somewhere else has royal blood, acts like a, a royalty would. She has this character that's deep. And uh, profound, and that is what Boaz notices about her, right? And this is what's interesting to me about this story. It's not like the being swept off your feet part. It's not the romance part. It's the character of the story, right? So uh, it's not just who Ruth and Boaz become when they meet, like what, how sweet that is. It's the fact that who they become as husband and wife is a di direct result of who they became individually and separately before they ever met. You see this? Romance begins before two people even meet. It begins in singleness. It begins when you develop character, the character of Christ, the character of God in your singleness that you bring to that first meeting of another person, right? So when two people invest in character, when they meet, they will see character and they will know it when they see it. So Ruth and Boaz had developed their character. They had grown up as adults before they ever locked eyes on each other. 
we see this character develop, even in this short story, we see characteristics of, of the character of God in Ruth, for example, um, things like faithfulness and loyalty. Young Ruth was more faithful than she had to be. She was nicer to her mother-in-law than she had to be. Young Ruth was more loyal and faithful to God than she had to be. Her people weren't believers in the same way that the Israelites were, but she believed in this God and the one God. And she wanted to honor God with her decisions. Even in her youth, Ruth knew that there were consequences to her choices. Before she ever met the man she was going to marry, she knew that her choices today will impact the health of her relationship with him tomorrow. And so she made choices that were selfless, often inconvenient, and allowed the character of God to be developed um, with, within her. And, uh, and in acknowledging God, God clearly acknowledges her. And, and, and we see this character developing in her, in faithfulness and loyalty. There's another thing about Ruth um, in terms of how she treats a Naomi that stands out. And she is kind and she is sympathetic. And this is what gets Boaz's attention. Did you notice? The story doesn't say Boaz was drawn in by Ruth's figure by her beauty, her voice, or anything else, superficially. The story says Ruth drew Boaz's attention by her character, by who she was, her kindness, right? And it's interesting to me that not a whole lot has changed here because I've done like 120-something weddings now, I've officiated, and I've been a part of premarital counseling for most of those couples, and I've led other couples through premarital counseling over the years. And there's almost a universal rule here, and it's not, it, I don't want to insult anybody here, but I ask every couple the same question when we're sitting down for premarital counseling. I ask them all to identify what, what it was about the other person, the person they're going to marry that drew them in. And if you're attached, you know, you can be thinking what, how you would answer this question. But the couples that are most prepared for marriage, the ones that are most well-adjusted and ready for the challenge of marriage, almost always across the board will identify a character trait that drew them in and not something superficial. There are couples that I've sat down with where she's been like, I just, I like his smile and he was so athletic. You know, and, and, and he'll be like, well, she's just really hot. You know, and so I, I just, sometimes those couples make it, I just pray a little more for those couples, right? Then, then the ones that sit down and go, you know, I had, I had honestly, I, one of the most recent weddings that I did, the, the guy, when I asked him to identify what it was about her that got his attention, he said, the first time I met her, um, I sat back before I even met her and I listened to her talking to a friend and what she did, how she listened, how responsive she was, how good and kind she was to that friend. It really got my attention. And then I'll hear women say things like, you know, I, I, he's a man of his word. He's a man of integrity. And he, he was this way before I met him. I just know he's going to follow through on what he says because I know he's a man of his word. And these kinds of character traits are the things that healthy couples identify about each other. Why? Because character attracts character. And on the dating scene, character finds character. And in marriage, character fosters more character. And this is how relationships work, godly relationships um, develop uh, over time. We've seen it, I've seen it time and time again. So women, don't let this world jade you. Don't let this world fool you into thinking that men out there just want you to be appealing in a physical way. And so you have to dress and act in a way that appeals to their caveman sensibilities. 
Not all men are that way. There are good men out there, and a good man, a good man will be more turned on and attracted to your uh, kindness and the quality of your character than anything else. Now, men, it's your turn, real quick. Guys, I've picked on girls quite a bit today, so guys, it's your turn. As we look to Boaz, Boaz is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he teaches us so much about what it means to be a real man. And I do not shy away from using that word, real man, because I believe we, should, we still should be, even in this PC world we live in, striving to become real men, guys. And Boaz shows us how. So think about Boaz and who he was. So before he ever met Ruth, Right? He had already developed this character. He had already become a man. He didn't wait to grow up until he met, you know, the, the girl that was going to, like, make him grow up and, like, you know, make him stop, you know, being in the man cave all the time. Like, he didn't wait. He didn't wait to meet the girl to grow up. He grew up before. You know, and I think part of this growing up before, growing up in singleness as a man, had to do with his upbringing and who his mama was. You see... Boaz's mom was, like Ruth, a foreigner, and she came from a difficult past. Boaz's mom was a prostitute named Rahab in Jericho. She was the prostitute in Jericho that allowed Joshua's men to conquer the city, and that's why her family was spared from that attack, right? And so she became part of the Israelite community, and that's Boaz's mama. And so Boaz, as a little boy, watched his mom growing up in a place where everybody knew she used to be a prostitute. So he watched her. He watched her deal with shame and, you know, keep her head up. He watched her deal with the pain of her past and how that affected her life today with grace, right? And so he learned something from that. And I think what he learned from that was empathy. Guys, if you take no other word home with you today, take empathy home with you. Guys, empathy means the ability to feel what someone else in front of you is feeling and expressing. It, it means adopting whatever emotions the person you love is emoting, right? So all the social scientists are saying empathy in the next generation, the millennial generation and beyond, is just going to be a lost art completely. Because even as connected as we are with technology, we have no idea how to empathize with each other and take on the feelings, the pain and the joy that someone else is giving us. Guys, empathy is like a muscle. You can work on it. You can develop the character trait of empathy. It takes practice, but look at Boaz, how he approaches Ruth. He approaches her with a question. And then this crazy thing happens. He listens to her response to his question. And then he responds to her response based on how she responded. And this crazy thing happens where, where like, he encourages her based on her own Vulnerability is the gift of empathy. And it can be developed, guys, asking questions of women that you're dating, the woman that you are dating, singular, <laughs> asking questions, listening, listening, responding appropriately and encouraging. This is the gift of empathy. And I dare say nothing is sexier than the eyes and hearts of many young women. A close second to empathy might be chivalry, even though, guys, you've been told chivalry is dead because women are, are equals and so they can pay their own checks and they can open their own doors, which might be another reason why nobody's getting married anymore um, because we've lost the art of chivalry. 
And of course, women are our equals. But we're making a false correlation when we say that because women are our equals, then we shouldn't be chivalrous anymore. That's ridiculous. You can see a woman is your equal and pick up the check, and you should. Guys, still pick up the check. Still open the door. Still be a gentleman. Why? Not because you're condescending the woman that you're with or you're like, you know, seeing her as less than, than you, but because you understand that a godly woman, a woman of character, a good woman is one in a million. And you recognize her value. You're communicating to her that you recognize her value as a daughter of the most high God. And you will treat her as such and treasure her as such. This is the gift of chivalry that we often have um, forgotten. And empathy and chivalry are as important now as they were in Boaz's time. Because while a lot has changed and women have more rights and are equal in many ways to men, some parts of the world have not changed. Because the world was unfair for women then and the world is in many ways unfair for women now. And I don't know how else to say this. Uh, remember the time when Boaz was talking to Ruth? in the field, and he said, you can take as much as you want and go feed Naomi, and God bless you, and stay as long as you want, and everything. And then he says, I have told the men, I've instructed the men there not to lay a hand on you. Why would he have to say that? Why do you have to communicate that? Because Ruth was especially vulnerable at that time. Ruth did not have as much of a voice at that time, right? And Boaz knew there were creepy guys who prey on vulnerable women. And that, unfortunately, has not entirely changed today, has it, ladies? Not exactly. Still are creepy guys who prey on vulnerable, oftentimes single women. So, guys, you can still be a knight in shining armor without being a jerk about it. You can still be chivalrous. And men of God, men of character, are still called to be protective and defending uh, women and, and, and uh, people that may be vulnerable in certain social settings. This is what it means to have character as a man of God. The third thing I find interesting about Boaz's character is that he was decisive. And it says strength on the screen, but I changed it 20 minutes ago. So it's decisive now. <laughs> and <laughs> we'll get to strength in a second. All right, so uh, decisiveness, man. Um, Boaz, when he's met with Ruth and she proposes him like out of nowhere, he's like, okay, let's do it. I'm good to go. He, at a moment's notice, when he realizes this, great woman is ready to be a wife, he says, I'm in. He is decisive because he was prepared to be decisive before he ever met her based on his character. And look, I wish in some way, maybe not this quick, but I wish more men were like Boaz, young men especially. I'll tell you why. Um, this is uncomfortable, but I, it's just too many young women that I have cared about that have spent many of their what we call like prime dating years with a guy who's not decisive. With a guy who seems like a nice guy, but really he's kind of selfish because he just strings her along telling her that he's in without really investing, right? So this is a guy who just kind of wants to date her, kind of wants to live with her, kind of wants to sleep with her or have other benefits of, you know, what normally would be marriage, but without the investment of the marriage. So this is the same thing as saying, I love you, but I'm keeping my options open here. And, and you know, that's not what anyone deserves, especially a good woman who loves the Lord. And so this kind of uh, upsets me. It's something I've seen too often in ministry. Boaz made a decision, and he followed through on that decision. And I'll tell you what else. Had Boaz, for whatever reason, 
not been ready to make that decision, he would have told Ruth that too. Because he was a, a decisive man of character. If he wasn't going to marry her, he would have told her. And she could have gone on about her life and made her own way, right? But he was honest and he uh, was decisive and he was ready. Even though that decision he made was going to cost him something. And this is where we get to the strength of Boaz. Boaz was strong enough to bear the burden of a relationship with Ruth. Now, Ruth, as awesome as she was, Ruth came with a little bit of baggage from her past, right? Ruth was a foreigner, and for a man of uh, standing like Boaz had, it was a little hit to your social status to marry a foreign woman. Um, Ruth was married before. She was someone else's wife before. She had some debts from that marriage, and there we go. I guess it's time to stop. Uh, <laughs> and Boaz, by law, he had to assume the, the debts, the land that her uh, dead husband owned. That was the rules. And so Boaz had to take all this stuff on as a way of, of making Ruth uh, his wife. But he was ready to do that. Why was he ready to make that investment at the drop of a hat? Because he had spent his young life working, preparing to be ready. Financially, emotionally, he was ready because he hadn't spent all his money on stupid stuff like a boy. He grew up. He grew up before he had to. And he saved his money. And he worked to be ready for that moment when Ruth stood in front of him and said, I want to be your wife. He was ready to say yes. He was ready to invest. And that investment will never scare a good man away. That investment will never scare a man of character away. Even if a woman brings some baggage with her, he will be strong enough because he's prepared, strong enough to carry whatever baggage she brings with her, whether it's a past she's not proud of or crazy ex or a child. A man of God doesn't back away from an investment like that. He knows that it's worth it. She is worth it. When I look at the character of Boaz and Ruth, I see the character of Christ and that's interesting because I, I think, you know, when I look at them, they develop the traits that we as followers of Jesus are trying to develop together as we follow Jesus. But they came centuries before Jesus. In fact, you might say, you might even be able to say, Boaz and Ruth handed their character down to Jesus. This is what I mean. In Matthew chapter 1, the writer of Matthew gives us Jesus' whole family tree. And he starts with Abraham, right, in Genesis. And then he lists all of Jesus' ancestors. And the very middle section of that, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And so here we see that Ruth, this foreigner, like teenager who had nothing and just gave her whole life away to serve her mother-in-law. Ruth was the grandmother of King David. And the ancestor of Jesus himself. And we see that God saw fit to include Ruth and Boaz in the great salvation story of the world. God included their marriage as part of the greatest blessing God has ever given the world, the blessing of Jesus. Right? And this is the miracle and the beauty of a really great marriage. The kind of marriage we're all working toward, whether you're single or married already. The beauty and miracle of a great marriage is that it's going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. But it's going to bless Everyone around you, your great marriage, if you invest in character, your great marriage will bless people you will never even meet. 
generations of people that will come after you will be blessed by the great marriage you cultivate now when you build it on the character of Christ, the character of God. And it begins with creating and developing that character today. The royal, noble character of Ruth. Married people, let me talk to you first. If it's a struggle, if your marriage is a struggle, as some marriages uh, can sometimes be, I want to challenge you not to look at your spouse like they're the problem and choose to look at yourself and say, God, what more do you want to fix in me? Single people, don't make it your life's mission and your singleness to look good at the right time and be in the right place, to meet the right person. Make it your life's mission to become a person who reflects the good nature, the character of Christ every day of your life. Don't wait until later. Don't just have fun until then. Do it now. Grow up now and be ready for when that moment does come because a great marriage is two people who grow up together. Choose to be Jesus together. Ladies, challenge you to follow Ruth's example. Be nicer than you have to be and work harder than you have to be and don't let this world break you down and make your heart cynical. And guys, don't shy away from being a knight in shining armor. Don't shy away from being chivalrous and protective. Learn empathy, how to ask questions and listen and respond and encourage, guys. Learn it now. Even with the women in your life who are friends, learn those qualities now. Get strong enough now so when the woman you're going to spend your life with is standing in front of you, you're strong enough to carry whatever burdens she brings and has been carrying on her own. This is what dating looks like in the kingdom of God, I believe. And this is what marriage looks like when we invest in character and develop our character before we even meet our spouse. Would you pray with me?